Okay, Sarah, thank you for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. We have met one time briefly in person, but I have known you online for a long time. And so I would love to just start out with kind of where you're at in life now, professionally. Um, what are you doing? Because you're doing some awesome stuff. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, I, for the last sort of three years or so, have been working on racial and social justice conversations and really working to move the needle so that we get more white people to have conversations like this. Um, we started with a podcast called Dear White Women. I know people have feelings about the name, but we started with that in April of 2019. Um, then 2020 happened and we have carried on with our weekly um, podcasts. Shortly into 2020, we were kind of like, not everybody's a podcast listener, but we really want more people to think about this message. So what are we going to do about it? And decided to write a book. So that came out. We wrote the book between the election and the insurrection. And then that came out in 2021. Um, and so we've really been focused on getting word out about that and continuing to have conversations with corporations, with schools, um, with communities about you know, what it takes to have these move the needle. And I'm very socially justice focused as well. And that's, I believe, originally how we connected on that and over that. And I listened to your podcast and really enjoy it. I remember listening to your podcast while I was driving in Virginia to my uncle's house last summer. And that was wonderful. You guys do a really good job. Um, we'll get more to those things as we progress, but I wanted to then take it all the way back. I know because you've talked and, and mentored a little bit some of my students, which I appreciate um, that you have a very winding path. So I'd love you to, to kind of start as early as you want to go back and take me through kind of how you got to where you're at. Sure. I think I'll mention college because that's where I met the co-host uh, and best friend that I've had for 25 years that I do my work with. Me, Sasha, and I met when we were undergrads at Harvard. And then I continued with this whole idea of the American dream success path and worked for an investment bank. Um, I worked for Goldman Sachs in their Tokyo, Hong Kong, and New York offices. And then my dad died. Um, I was 26 at the time. He was only 59. And we found out that he had a brain tumor and within a month he had passed away. And so that basically shook me absolutely to my core. Um, you know, we're really close. He was awesome. And um, that really took my breath away, basically. Um, and I realized he had, he'd always, over the years that I'd been working in finance, signed his emails off, like, keep the balance, love dad. And it was only after he died that I was like, I don't think I'm keeping the balance. I'm working like 14 hour days. You know, you're in your 20s, you party a lot. And the next thing I know, I, you know, he was gone. And I'm like, oh, we don't live forever. And then, so am I keeping the balance? Am I enjoying my life? If this doesn't shake me from gold, the golden handcuffs, if like, I don't really admit that I'm not loving what I'm doing right now at this point, I'm basically never gonna leave. And so um, I took a leave of absence from Goldman, which as it turns out, I didn't know mental health and leaves was one of the top causes for people to take leaves of absence in cor corporate America, but um, it was. So that felt great uh, to sort of have the time to, you know, take care of myself and figure out what I was going to do next. And I came back and I left. Um, so after leaving, get this for sort of random winding paths, I had taken a class as an undergrad and um, it was all about happiness. So fast forward, I had left finance. I was sort of puttering around in Brooklyn, which is where we were living at the time. Um, and then an old high school friend of mine comes to the coffee shop just to like kick around this happiness project she had. And I'm like, man, I wish I knew that guy's name. Like he was really like teaching about this positive psychology and happiness stuff. I can't remember his name. Within the month, my mom was like, no, you have to come with me to this yoga retreat. And I'm like, fine. Like we're still reeling. It's like less than a year after my dad died. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Fine. I'll go with you to a yoga retreat. We walk in late to this massive room at Kripalu and I sit down in this circle and I look up and across the circle is Tal Ben-Shahar, who was the guy whose name I had forgotten, who is a positive psychology professor, leader in the space. And I'm like, oh, like, this is it. This was like the guy I was trying to think of just a month ago that I really wanted to like remember. And so we spoke afterwards and it was great. We reconnected. He totally remembered me, even though it had been like seven years and, and said, <clears throat> excuse me, he had said like, you know, what are you doing now? This is what I'm doing. Positive psychology, life coaching. And it was like my whole being lit up. Like this was what I wanted to do. I didn't know this existed. And so I got certified um, 
during which time we moved sort of further west out of the East Coast. And it was great. I had my life coaching practice, was chugging along. I found out that he was going back to Harvard and teaching. And so I went back and was one of his teaching fellows, which was incredible. Um, you got to live in a dorm again. And I can tell you a mouse story later on if you want, <laughs> but um, got to do that. And then um, had kids. You know, my husband and I had already met at this point, and I, we were very fortunate to have kids. And these kids did not want mommy to not be right there. You know, my husband has a job that was like causing him to travel a lot. And so I was like, I think this means that I have to pay more attention to these children. And so I actually made the choice, uh, the best choice for our family, which was to shut down the coaching business and be full-time caregiver for the kids. And then the second kid, and then was that dabbling in projects until the youngest one went to, to kindergarten right here in Colorado. I don't know if we're going to get to the mouse story, but I do want to, <laughs> um, I want to touch on your father too, and how that impacted you a little more too. Um, but I first want to go, I think Americans who are outside of the world of Harvard are fascinated by Harvard. Um, just from a general standpoint, what is Harvard actually like from the inside? What is it? Is it what I think of it is, or I don't know. I guess what I think of it is, is um, very competitive, um, very male centered in a lot of ways, white male centered, um, very prestigious, obviously. And you're burning at both ends. Like you talked about that you have to be social because there's a very social side to it that you feel like you have to be. I just listened to something where they were talking about introverts at Harvard and how hard that is for them. Um, and then the academic side being very rigorous. What, what was Harvard like actually going there? Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, I, it's interesting you say that about a white male dominated lens. I mean, I think generally America tends to be, I didn't find that to be my experience there, but I think it was the first time that I also got to, you know, living. So my mom's Japanese. We didn't talk about that. My mom's Japanese. She immigrated to the United States after she and my dad had already met um, while they were both working in Tokyo. My dad was a white um, guy. Um, and so I, for the first time in my life, met a whole group of biracial people. So I finally found my place there. I was in a gospel choir. Like I really felt like I had found my people, my community. And, and you know, yes, I knew a lot of white people there too, but it never really felt like that was the dominant narrative for me. Um, and I think, yes, there is definitely a sense of prestige. I mean, the freshman dining hall is absurd. I think it's a gigantic hall. It's like a Harry Potter scenario with, you know, stained glass windows and on all that stuff. And the rooms and the dorms are fantastic. So yes, there's definitely a sense of awe and um, wisdom through the ages that you get that sense of, you know, presence there. But I think you got to sort of participate in it the way you wanted to participate in it. I think the introverts or people who wanted to really focus on their studies got to do that. And then the people who wanted to socialize, there was plenty of opportunity for socializing. And so I found it to be an incredible experience surrounded by people who were really motivated, thoughtful, like driven, intelligent, curious human beings. Um, and I had a lot of fun. That's wonderful. That does put a more positive light on it for me. So thank you for that. Um, and I still believe that it's one of the few colleges where there, that prestige factor obviously carries outside of the, the classroom and, and you get a lot of opportunities in networking. I believe the world is networking um, and that I'm sure opens up a lot of opportunities in that capacity too. Um, for moving on to um, your father again and the impact, was there expectations of you to go into this kind of traditional pathway from your parents um, like you talked about uh, or do you think you could have done something like this initially and they would have been supportive of that? Did you feel the pressure from them? Yes, I did actually. And I think, you know, less so from my dad, I think, and a lot more from my mom. You know, I showed up at Harvard and at some stage she was like, you know, you still need to go become a pharmacist because having a degree from Harvard doesn't guarantee you any skills or a job or anything else like that. Um, ah. The dog has been released. Can you hang on one second while I go make sure? All right. All right. One of the things that I am willing to document in this is that you all have very busy lives. And I think women more than men have busier lives and are doing a million different things. So you're dealing with your dog while you're working, while you're doing all these other things. So I'm okay with keeping that in there. So thank you for coming back. And we're just kind of talking about the expectations of your parents um, for career. Yes. So I think you know, my mom really bucked the trend of the Asian immigrant, you know, 
really the model minority myth and all that sort of stuff. She is not your typical air quotes, Japanese woman by any stretch of the imagination, but in terms of the pressure for achievement, that was absolutely there. And, and so this pressure that she sort of, I don't even know how consciously she did this because she loves every single one of us and knows that we are worthwhile human beings, but there was absolutely this pressure to be like, no, I, I you need to have a, a skill. You need to have something that nobody can take away from you. And that's not what a liberal arts college does. And so I think that message in my head undermined a little bit of the I'm enough, I'm strong enough, I'm good enough confidence, even though I went to Harvard, um, which, I, as you said, from you know the outsider's perspective should be all anybody needs to feel successful. And, and for sure, the networking is great and, and the opportunities are great. But I had that voice from my parents in my head or my mom in my head that, that I still needed to prove myself. I think, if I'm really, really honest. Yeah, that's very honest and very interesting, and 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 I think can then lead to, you know, your career path the way it is a certain way. But I'm sure there's many things. Let's jump to there real quick. Are there things in your career now that you're thankful for for doing that other very different pathway? Um, oh, your traditional path. For sure. Like, I think the people I got to meet, similar to, to Harvard, the people at Goldman Sachs are top notch, right? Just work hard, play hard, contribute really well to society in terms of like curiosity and growth and investments and all that sort of stuff uh, on an individual level. And so the contacts that I made there, the idea of, I know that I know how to work hard. I know how to relate to people. I know how some of the businesses work. All of that was a great experience. Um, it is hard to think at this stage in my life, how far removed I am from it, because it still is a presence in my life. But um, yeah, like I, I am absolutely still in contact with the people that I was close with back then. And they are just great people to know. Do you think that if your dad hadn't passed away, you would have made this draft or felt comfortable to make this drastic change? Such a good question. I don't know. I don't know what that would have looked like because, you know, I think there are times in all of our lives where something doesn't feel right. You're not sure what that is, but it's too scary to change. And, and I think anybody who's experienced the loss of a parent, and I'm so sorry if you have, it's a club that I wish like we didn't have to be a part of, but it shifts your perspective on life, I think, in a way that almost nothing else does. And so when you are forced to confront mortality, when you're forced to confront loss, like it really does give you an opportunity to make pretty dramatic changes to maybe realign your life with the values as they are now versus what they were before. And I think that's what I wound up doing, realizing like, look, if I don't, if I'm not going to live forever, right, that fallacy of youth and immortality was absolutely kicked out of me. Um, what do I want my life to look like? And I think that was when not only am I curious about people, which was my truth, I've always wanted to help people. Um, and I've always wanted to live a life with more time affluence as opposed to monetary affluence. But it was really, really hard to leave that. Like it was, it was this whole identity shift. And what am I good for? Like, how can I grapple with what success means? Because I'm no longer doing that thing that basically I was spoon fed to believe was the definition of success. And I had to learn how to redefine that on my own. Yeah. Especially from such a high power job that's respected because of the monetary part of it and the power part of it and the people you're running with in those circles who are part of that system too. Um, can you jump back a little bit to those days? You said you lived in and worked in Japan, right? Yes. Yep. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what you were doing in there and how that was? Yeah. So I was working at Goldman. I was working in their equities division, sort of straddling uh, and creating a new part of their equities and research communications, basically. So I ran kind of like the internal communications, if you will. It was called merchandising at the time um, and, and bridged the gap. So I was really lucky in that it wasn't a traditional sales job. It was this new creation. And I got to be one of the two people who helped start that desk and figure out what it was. So my visibility within the organization was, was pretty high. I got to work with like the heads of the research department, the, the heads of the sales guy. I flo floated around the entire trading floor, like the guys in, and the handful of the women knew me. Um, and so I felt really like comfortable in that space. The other thing I would say about the Tokyo office of Goldman that I really appreciated was that there wasn't this hierarchy. It was a very, um, like I, I'm trying to make this motion of like a smoosh down thing, like the head of the entire office would 
amble over down the, the row and sit in the empty seat next to me and just be like, how are you doing? You know, and I'm two years out of college and he's having a real conversation with me, respecting me as a person. We would go out to lunch together. Like they made a really big point of appreciating um, me as a person, all of us as people. And I think there's something to being a foreigner because even though I'm biracial with my name and how I looked, I was seen as a foreigner with the added perk of being fluent in Japanese. And yet there were people out there who grew up in the United States, just like I did, who are biologically Japanese, but just as American as I am. And they were expected to pour the tea for the clients. They were expected to behave a different way. And so in that culture, I had a very different experience than, than what I would have had, had I been fully Japanese, even if I had been American as well. Had you, before going back there to work, had you visited Japan before? Had you been on vacation there? Yeah. Yeah. That was my sort of, I'm the oldest by quite a few years um, of my siblings. And so I think by the time I was 10, my mom was like, forget summer vacation. We're putting you on a plane and you're going to go spend the summer with your grandparents. And so, you know, in addition to having traveled quite a number of times when I was younger with my whole family, because my mom left the country. And I think she wanted to make sure her grandkids and her parents got to spend time together. So, you know, we spent quite a bit of time there growing up, but starting at 10 years old, I was sent by myself for, for a number of summers and would have to attend the Japanese local school. And um, that was actually where I first experienced racism in the sense that, you know, here I was, my schoolmates in fourth grade thought I was cool. This was in the era of like the scrunchie and the kids with the push down socks. And, and there I was like, they all thought this American was neat to talk to. And then anybody who wasn't in my class didn't know me. They just saw me. And even when I was standing next to the school principal, they're shouting at me, you know, foreigner, go home. You don't belong here. And so the, I carry that message with me too, in terms of understanding what it feels like potentially to be made to feel like I don't belong or be dismissed and, and, you know, not seen. Yeah, that's interesting. We are, I, my wife is from Poland and we are about to, in one month, go move to Poland for one year to have our kids be close to their grandparents and really be immersed in the culture and language. Um, and I don't think there's going to be that same pushback from the Polish kids towards my kids because racially they were the same in, in that capacity. But I am interested in, in, in that experience because the connection to your culture, I think, is really important and wonderful. And so it's interesting you navigated and having to navigate both of those sides. Um, was going back to Japan, your idea, was that a goal you had when you started at Goldman? Was that something that you wanted to do? And, and was that around your culture be based on that? Or was it more just because you had the skills? Um, it, I definitely did not have the skills. I was like an East Asian studies major. I had no idea what I was doing, but they say they would train you up. So, and they did. Um, I had wanted during college to actually spend some time understanding my mom's culture. You know, when, when you have a parent who, and I, I love that you're doing that with your kids, because I think when you have a parent who is an immigrant, who was raised in a different society with different norms than the one that you're raised in, like some things don't translate. Some things I was, I remember growing up being like, why do I have to do it this way? And my dad being like, this is the culture your mom was raised in. This is how it is, you know, get used to that. And, and we bridged our, the cultures in our very own home just growing up. And so being curious about that, you know, I, I did spend time as a younger child going back, but I thought it would be a very different experience having money and freedom uh, and being an adult, observing what it was like and spending time in my mom's culture. So that was really my my drive. I spoke the language and and I was you know, you make more money working at Goldman Sachs than you do teaching English in Japan. And I had a lot of student loans to pay, to be honest. And so I was very lucky to get, get on there and, and had a great experience, but it was really driven by my curiosity to live where my mom had grown up. What kind of things did you learn when you were there as an adult and see what kind of sides, I guess, of Japan did you see that you hadn't seen previously when you were so close to your grandparents and a kid? So my grandparents live in the suburbs and my mom has a, a complicated backstory, but suffice it to say, I have family in like not Tokyo, but in a lot of different parts of, of Japan, some in the countryside, you know, some in the suburbs. And then um, I had never really lived in Tokyo. You know, I, when I went back there to visit my grandmother, it would be mostly in the suburbs and we'd take the train into the city periodically. But when I lived in Tokyo, it was almost like a completely different beast because when you're in the city, it's one of the few places where there are more foreigners. You know, I was one of, I think, three non-Japanese women that I knew out there. 
Um, whereas there's a lot more, you know, non-Japanese guys that we knew and we would all hang out. There was a great expat community. But I don't think, I, I think the best things that I experienced were almost the time with my grandmother because we would, on weekends, we would go on trips to the onsen, the, the hot springs together. We would go, I would sometimes do like the, um, you know, those Japanese tour bus that are stereotypically like they have the flag waving and that sort of stuff. I literally went on one of those in Japan, like a bus tour with my grandmother and her friends to this mountainside. And, and we got to experience that. And, and it was, it was interesting to spend more time getting to know my grandmother as a person. And I think that's what I take the most from it. Uh, in addition to what a wild city Tokyo is, because we had lots and lots of experiences there that were mind blowing in, in all sorts of ways. Um, but but yeah, I think it was the time spent. You can hear my thread is like, it's the people that have made my life what it is. Yeah, we do all these interviews of elders for Mumbert interviews. And that's, I get to watch them um, for quality control and to give our women feedback. And it's always about the people, people and experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and we've never been to, I love to travel and we've been very fortunate to be able to travel. We've never been to Japan, but everyone I've known who's gone there has just loved it and had an amazing experience. And it seems like because it was so isolated, it's also a very different culture and unique in so many different ways and physically beautiful, um, but hard to get to, right? It's very, very far away and, and very expensive. And I think that's a, an interesting thing to my wife's family. She used to do that with her aunts and uncles is she used to go and spend prolonged periods with them. And I think that it's great on both sides. It's great for the parents to have that break from you. I'm learning as a, as a parent, but also <laughs> that you're, when your loved one is with someone, you know, loves them and they're connecting and it's a different bond that way. I think that's so powerful. Did, did your siblings get that same experience or it was just you because you're the oldest? Yeah, it was me because I'm the oldest. And, and I think as I also went to Saturday school growing up. So I had Japanese school every Saturday. So I didn't get to do Girl Scouts and I didn't get to do soccer or like sleepovers on Friday nights, which I was really mad about at the time. But now being fluent in another language, I'm really grateful for my mom and the hard work she put into it. Um, my brothers, by the time they sort of came through the system, I think we had the older ones had sort of worn out my parents and they were allowed to stop school earlier on. So they're not as fluent, but they still, you know, we do take family trips back there periodically. And, and even now as adults, we still go back there together and, and get to spend time uh, with our family. So that's wonderful. Um, so then taking that and you talked a little bit about the, the racism that you felt there and how that has impacted your work. I want to talk more about the, the work that you're doing now and kind of you went on this path and you found this kind of guru that you're working with and, and started doing coaching and then um, worked into your podcast. Can you tell me like before kind of the podcast and you had your friend, but how did that really come about? Yeah. So when I was doing positive psych and, and, and doing that work, I mean, I love it. I still am fascinated by how people work. And, and I think sort of almost for my own self, wanted to understand what helps people thrive because there's this whole science about like how to get out of not doing well, but then that's a smaller percentage of people, maybe not now post pandemic, but I think overall it was still a smaller percentage of people in the population, but so much of the studies had been there. And I'm like, but what about for the rest of us who are okay, but want to do like <clears throat> excuse me, really, really well. What is the science that shows that? And that's what this field does. And I wanted to understand it by getting to like teach it as I was learning, it was fascinating. And basically we've lived our life with some of the basic principles of positive psychology since we've been together as a family, because I wanted, now I know that the science shows X, Y, Z. I want to do that with our kids so that we can maximize our sort of biological potential for happiness. So here I was doing all this work on like people's happiness and then I knew that coming out of it as a mom, like out of staying at home parenting, basically, while working some side projects was hard for me because I wasn't the happiest stay at home mom. And so I first started sort of emerging by working again with, with moms and that sort of thing. But I realized pretty quickly that even though that's what I was saying I wanted to do, what I was actually spending my time doing was looking at stuff like bringing a, a band like the Alphabet Rockers into town who make music for kids um, to learn about diversity and gender diversity and racial diversity. And, and I was spending time reading and talking about racial and social justice. And I was like, okay, so I know I'm saying I wanna help moms, but I think this is what I'm actually proving to myself that I'm spending the time doing, what can I do? And at that point, the other part of this is that my best friend of 25 years, Misasha, who's also biracial, she's married to a black man and her boys are very multiracial, black, Japanese, and white, but the world sees them as black. 
And here we are, you know, best friend, she lives in California. So we've just talked on the phone all the time. And as we were becoming parents, like our conversations really started changing. And we were talking about our hopes, dreams, and fears for our kids as, as I think a lot of people do when you become parents. And we were like, your fears are different than the fears I'm hearing from so many other people who are not black. These conversations were not reflected in the conversations that were happening in, in all white circles or in the places that we were, you know, sort of moving through. And so as best friends do, we were like, well, what can we do about this? Cause that was around the same time I was like bring, realizing this about myself. And we sort of went, we, I mean, we tossed around a bunch of different ideas to be honest, but then we're like, well, why don't we just do what's easy and what's natural to us? And we know we can talk. We're really good as long distance best friends talking. And there was that thing called podcasting that was out there. And we're like, let's just give it a try. And we really thought that probably five people most related to us would listen. And, and here we are, you know, three years later, still churning out weekly episodes, tons of listenership, really, really grateful that the platform has grown. Um, but it really started out from that personal need to address feeling that something wasn't right, that, that people weren't looking out for her kids the same way they might be looking out for my kids who look white. So that basically has taken on a life of its own. And in the last uh, year, both of us have actually completely shut down. She was, she's a lawyer. Um, she shut down even her own private practice. And, and, and I am no longer coaching outside of doing work in this realm of, of racial and social justice. So it seems like a leap but she brings the law and the history to a lot of the conversations. I bring a lot of the psychology and, and um, human interest to these conversations. And I think we balance each other out pretty well. How does that feel to you? Because um, I'm going through the same thing right now. I quit teaching and not quit. I postponed because we're going to go to Poland. So I knew I had this kind of year hiatus where I could run Mama Bird full time and, and give it my all, um, which is an incredibly liberating experience. It's financially for us, it's tricky because my wife is very much from Poland and like a salary coming in is a big deal for her. So it's something that, but she's been very supportive, very supportive of our work. And for me, being able to follow your passions in that way, especially at my, I, I just turned 42. So at my age is such a gift. And I feel I appreciate it much more at this point in my life to be able to do this and go for it. And it's so aligned with who I am as a person and, and all of that, that it feels um, really, really good. Um, but at the same time, you talked about, and we, well, I'll hopefully pick your brain later in this conversation about kind of that life coaching part of, I have everything I want. I should be happy all the time in my mind, or how do I get even better and go to that level? But for you, when you did make the switch, and now that you're doing this work, um, how does it feel? And, and with your best friend, what, what is that? Can you explain kind of how that feels? Yeah, it's incredible. I'm so, so lucky that I'm doing this work with her. I don't think there's anyone else on the planet I could do the work with to this degree um, other than her. I think one of the biggest things about working with my best friend has been that we know each other. First, we love each other unconditionally. There's no judgment, right? I already know she's incredible. And for whatever reason, she believes the same thing about me, right? Like that kind of relationship where you, where you start with this love and understanding of someone's humanity is really, really powerful. So I'm lucky. And then I think, you know, on top of that, we realize very clearly that we're doing this yes, to improve our current world, but it's really about helping our kids and the world that they're going to inherit from us. And so we were able to be very clear that if our work was going to overwhelm our ability to have the energy to be there for our kids, that wasn't going to work. And so if stuff happens with either one of our kids or the school schedule is all messed up or spring, but we work around all of these things and plan, for example, we're right now recording all of our summer episodes. So we don't have to record a single thing over the summer and they will all be released by our team and that will be done. So that is very helpful as well. Um, you know, going back to that idea of working in your passions, like I'm on purpose. This is like, I finally found my voice because I think when I was doing the other work in positive psychology alone, I have a lot of incredible mentors and friends in the space. Like, like there's a world happiness summit that I know a lot of the people at, and like they do such incredible work that that idea of what we talked about earlier with my mom, that voice of like, I'm not enough, which is like my favorite phrase. And I have supporting me on the wall in my office all the time. It, it, like it haunted me 
And I couldn't tell if it was because I was comparing myself to more academic and other people's work, or if it was because I wasn't on purpose, but I knew something in my soul was not in alignment with it. I was not settled and confident in that way. And so having found this, I understand my role in bringing that lens to racial and social justice. And I feel so good about being able to offer that, um, that I know that this is what I meant to do. I think that last piece you mentioned about making a living out of it and and what does that mean to be successful? That's the harder part because podcasting doesn't make you any money, right? And the way we set up our platform, we are very careful about getting corporate sponsors because I don't want our content to have to be modified in any way other than how we want to show up. And so, you know, corporate sponsors, if you say anything political, you can't do it. We don't want to be hampered. And so we have to find our funding and our income elsewhere to fund the podcast, but it is our passion project. It's the core of what we do. We are so lucky that we get to talk to the people we do and, and learn the history as we're creating these episodes that, that, I mean, we've done it for three years. We're on episode like 166. We're, we're not, we're not going to run out of things to talk about for probably another decade, at least in, in racial and social justice. So I want to keep learning. I want to model for people what it means to continue to be on this journey of learning, because I think it's relevant to every single one of us, right? We all show up with a race. We may not thought, have thought about it. Our parents may have shushed us when we were growing up being like, we don't talk about race, but that's not how it is. Our kids are not learning it that way. And if we want to be able to keep up with our children who are growing up, certainly in Colorado, with schools that are teaching them about pronouns, with they're going through sex ed right now, like all the things about you know gender and sexuality. And, and then they're talking about their black friends and they're talking about racism. We have to keep up and be curious in order to be able to help our children and support their growth as well. So yeah, I don't know if that I sort of veered off there, but. uh... No, I think it aligns and it aligns with the way I think too. Um, My kind of privilege journey and becoming aware of my own privilege. I grew up in San Diego um, in a neighborhood. I would be like a Cherry Creek school basically um, in a pretty middle-class, upper middle-class community. And uh, my mom specifically moved us there to have good schools and have access to good education. Um, but even my parents were very liberal. And even with that, never talked about race, never um, was even aware of these things. And then we moved, I got married to my wife and we moved back to Denver where my dad's from. And we've got a huge family out here. And then I got back into education. I was, I was in business before and, and wanting to get into education. So I got a job in Montbello. And I remember when I started out, the students would call me racist for asking them to do work. And I would shut them right down. Don't you ever call me racist. I'm not racist. And I was really offended by it. And then as I went through all these trainings, I started to realize that, wow, if you had experienced racism in any form, then that would color the rest of the way you would deal with any interactions. And so that was such a mind opener for me. And then I went back to get my doctorate in educational equity and took a class called Power and Privilege. And my mind was just blown. Um, at all these different privileges that I had and, and, and was unaware of. And one of the, the privileges that blew my mind was there was an African-American man in my class and he was at the high end of the DPS level. And he said, I'm the only black guy at these tables and every meeting I'm at, they look for my opinion on this. And so I'm like, isn't that a good thing? And he says, kind of, but I can never be off in these meetings and I'm representing all of my people, which is not, you know, we're not a monolith and all this other stuff. And I was like, oh man, even when it's good, it's bad. And he said, yes. And so it was just very mind opening to me. And I've been pretty outspoken about my privilege since then, but I'm also now coming to the realization that people are at such different different parts of their journey in this and different awarenesses. And so I've got to slow it down in a lot of ways, um, but who does seem to get it is the next generation. And so I'm really excited about that is um, kids in this community are so much more aware, even though this community isn't as diverse as I would love it to be, the young people are so much more aware of these things and it's, and it's less of an issue or, or, you know, to them in general. And so as we move forward, I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, I like what you said though, about being blind to our own privilege, because I think, I think that is something that I have had to learn about as well. Right. I mean, I'm biracial. I've had to think about this stuff, but I think for the second half of my life, I've been married to a white man. Uh, I lived in predominantly white areas. I have a lot of white friends and like, I, I was kind of like, okay, what, you know, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm a person of color, but I'm air quoting that still, like, where do I belong? But I kept, I, I think it's also important to realize we are all in positions of privilege relative to somebody else. And even for me to be able to do what I'm doing right now, I have the privilege of being 
financially secure. I live in a community that has green space. I have no problem getting my food. I have a car so I can get places. Like I forget where, like how privileged, how deeply privileged I am. And I have to be very mindful of that in a lot of conversations, because I think for any of us, when we show up, we sometimes don't forget or, you know, forget to think about how our lenses are shaped in terms of how we see the world. And, and like, honestly, it didn't occur to me until like the latest couple of elections where I was like, oh my gosh, the way that they are doing, because we've lived in states where we can walk to ballot boxes and drop them off in our community, right? I didn't, it, it did not occur to me that some people would have to spend an entire day riding a public system in order to cast a ballot in other states because they don't have the financial privilege that I do. And when I think about that sort of thing and how that plays into the racial politics and, and so much other privilege also in, in gender dynamics and in the transgender community, like it's just, I want people to spend a moment to think about what they do have, even if they sometimes feel like they have to work hard or it's not great. Because I have sometimes felt not so happy. We have a lot of stuff going on, but I still have so much privilege. Yeah, um, I had the women in our program have a conversation kind of introducing people to privilege if they weren't aware of it. And I think people learn easier from young people. And so this was two African-American women, one of them that was, I guess, African originally, um, or still is African. Um, she's an immigrant from Somalia, and then a, a Black woman from Colorado, and then an Indigenous woman. And they started the conversation out with, we are so privileged. To live in this country is a huge privilege. To be have an education is so privileged. And so it was neat to see it through their lens too, and the awareness of that, is I think people just real don't see that part of it. They get very attacked by it. And it started as a conversation with my uncle um, on Facebook, where you can get so polarizing and, and not moving anything forward, really, me arguing with them. And so that's where I thought is, well, if they could have one-on-one -on -one conversations, then that could be a way to really move themselves forward. Because um, typically, we all want the same thing, which is safety and security and education and all these wonderful things. And I think there's much more that connects us than divides us. Yeah, um, but I think that's the important point. Like, I just started reading this book called Fractured. I don't know where it's going to take me. So I may, you know, by the time this airs, have a totally different opinion. So I reserve the right to change my views. But one of the premises of this book is that we are getting so divided as societies because we are split so much by our privilege. We are so surrounded by people. If I, you know, I went to college, a lot of my friends went to college too. In fact, though, only 30% approximately of this country has gone to college. And so I know a minority group within this country, and I'm not aware of it because I just feel like everybody I know went to college, right? And so when we think about what is missing in past generations, we've been aware of this um, tendency humans have to like people like me, right? Like I like people like me and you like people like you, and it's a human tendency. They're trying to figure out if it's like from society, but it's really might be just in our DNA that we are drawn to people who are more like us, but societies in the past have had these neutral, like third party zones, right? You have voluntary programs, you have all these other areas where the community center, you know, those, those social clubs. If we look around, I'm looking around at our neighborhood right now, as I, as we record this, and we are also in a bubble. Like how many times have people referred to Central Park as a bubble? And yes, they're building multi-use, you know, homes and they've been building other apartment complexes, but what are the what are our thoughts about the people who live in those places? I want us to all make sure that we understand that unless we create opportunities for us to come into contact with people who are not like us, we are going to be surrounded by a bubble of our own making. And that is what is furthering this divide because we don't have that empathy to understand what someone else's life might be like. And it does take that intentional creation. And it's hard because it's it requires effort, that, that whole idea of change, right? I was leaving finance and I don't know what I was going to do. This idea of change is scary and something new is scary, but that could be the missing piece. And I have no idea where our particular community is going to end up in several more election cycles, if we don't make a point of finding those third party places, opportunities to meet people who are not like us and remember our privileges. Yeah, as the real estate in this community goes up and up and up and up, we couldn't afford our own house and be here now. But that makes me think too, we definitely, um, when we moved here from Commerce City before and bought a house in Commerce City through a program called Good Neighbor Next Door, which I think is a loaded name, it's for police officers, firemen, and or whatever the, the better term for fire, fire people, and, um, and teachers. And we were able to buy a half price foreclosed home in Commerce City and then get a loan to renovate it. 
Um, and we did not connect as much with our neighbors, certainly as we do here. And I think most of it was the past lived experiences and the education level um, being different. And so, and we also, I didn't make a, as much of an effort as I should have to connect with other people. And I did see it as a house we probably wouldn't stay at forever. Um, and so that is a very interesting point. And I see that about the bubble with this community. And that is, that's what I think empowering women. I think women can come up with those answers is how do we bring people together and connect and again, with the same goal that everybody thrives, I think that no one wants not everyone not to thrive. And so I think there is a solution to, to figure out there. Um, okay, so with that in, in mind, because I do want to become my best self, I just would love to, to learn more from you now that I know about your coaching past too. I, I think that's very much where I'm at in life is I'm in a very good position. We're about to take you know a year trip to Poland and do this where I want to be very productive with that time. At the same time, I know this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, that's not true. In my dream life, I'd like to live somewhere else every five years. Um, but outside of that, this is a very unique opportunity. And I think the war in Ukraine, we get asked that a lot if the war in Ukraine impacts us still going to Poland. And for me, it makes it more obvious that we need to go there because tomorrow you may not be able to. And something could happen in COVID was like that too, where you get cut off from these things that you just think are granted. And I guess with the losing of your father too, those kind of things happen and, and you may not be able to do them. So you need to go while you can and do all these things. And so with that, I'm in a place where I feel that I should be like really happy all the time. And I'm a very happy and optimistic person, but I'm not like floating on air, which maybe that's not the goal in life to have. And I think you need some downs to, to be aware of the ups. Um, but what kind of stuff with your background do you recommend for people who are in a really good situation, but want to get better and want to do better and want to be happier? What kind of things do you say to them? I think the biggest, two of the biggest things I would say is one, the there was a, a big study that followed people that showed um, relationships are the cornerstone of your long-term health and happiness. And it's about the depth of those relationships. And so the second part of that is, is to be, have meaning in your life, to be, have meaningful connections, to live a purpose-filled life. And so we can even play mind games with ourselves because I don't know about you, this is a very parent-heavy community. So um, you might understand this there are times where I really am not excited about having to spend the time putting my kids to bed, right? They're just annoying sometimes, especially when they were younger. And I'm just like, hurry up. I don't want to sit here reading the book for the umpteenth time and that sort of stuff. But if we even get to switch our languaging around that and say, I get to spend this time with my children. I am nourishing their brains. We are having connection. We are stimulating the neurons by like, you know, rubbing their backs. We get to do all of these things. If we hold those same things we're doing and find the purpose in them, we can actually get more meaning from them. And I think those two things, investing time in your relationships and making sure that what you are spending your time, money, and energy doing aligns with a purpose that you feel strongly connected to can really shift how we see our lives. Because nobody expects anyone to have like this happy-go-lucky life all the time. I don't. I, I agree with you. I don't think that's the purpose of it all. But I think it's this sense of inner grit, determination, purpose, drive that really gets us to a feeling of satisfaction with our life. And that you you struck a chord with me with that with me becoming and and one of my privileges being born a man and being a father as opposed to a mother, the expectations on me from my children, from society are so much less than on my wife. And so while I'm leaving my day job to do what I want and, and literally all of that that comes with it and, and choosing where I wanna go and having the flexibility in that, um, and now I'm working out more and doing things that are healthy for me. And my wife is working all day as a middle school teacher, which has made be the hardest of all, all positions. And then she comes home and has more of an ask from the kids and the kids are all over her. And I see that with her is it's hard by the end of the night, she's done. And she wants to have a little time for herself that she hasn't gotten all day. And in my mind too, initially my thoughts were, come on, like our kids are young. This is the time. Like you're a great mom, obviously like enjoy this. And then I see that just the expectations are so much different on me. And I'm like a bonus. Like when I was, that was always shocking to me when I was taking my kids out when we were young and I would get like high fives from the world as I was, you know, taking my kids to the bathroom as a dad. Yeah, dad. And my wife does everything and, and gets none of the credit for it while she's doing the laundry and all these other things. Right. So I'm reflecting on that. And, and so that's so much of what you're saying. Yeah. I, I read a, I was on a call with a brilliant person who shared this, which changed my perspective entirely, which was that motherhood comes with actually three buckets. Um, there is the physical calendaring and emotional care. 
And when we talk about equitable support in the home, like, you know, who makes dinner, does the laundry, picks up the kids, all that sort of stuff. That's the visible, like the, that the physical stuff is all the visible stuff that you just talked about. Right. But a lot of times, at least one parent is also taking care of all the calendaring. Did I do the, uh, you know, their five-year checkup? Did I book the play date? Did I get them signed up for summer camp? Like all of the mental labor there. And then the emotion. Just to interrupt really quick. I have no idea what size clothes my children wear. Like again, I'm a feminist and aware of all this crap. And I still have no idea what size of clothes my children wear. My wife does all the scheduling completely. And that's something that I am so not appreciative of enough. And I always kind of in my mind justify that I could keep the kids alive if, if she wasn't here and that would be good enough. And that's kind of the expectation when it is me. And then I also justify in my head that I don't think do things as well as her or up to her standards. Um, but then one of my friends, because we were talking about Airbnb at our house when we, when we would go on vacation, it's helped us travel so much. And I was talking about putting on a, you know, the, the slip around the blankets, duvet or whatever it's called. And I'm like, I can't do it like she wants. And she's like, bullshit, Dan. Like you can do, you could, if I was paying you money, you couldn't do this. So then I started doing that. We got HelloFresh. I'm trying to cook, but the, ske- the scheduling and stuff like that is such a mental load that she would love to, to not have to do, but she does it. And it's all too, you talked about, you're tucking in your kids and maybe not being aware of that in the moment. From my wife's perspective, like she is not right or able to enjoy anything if the kids aren't taken care of and not just alive again, like thriving and doing things and every the best for them. And so that part of it, I get to do fun stuff with them, but I'm not organizing it or planning it or paying for karate and figuring this kind of stuff out or piano and all the stuff that she has them in. And that exhausts you at the end of the day too. Talking to you is making me realize that I need to, I need to do so much better. So this will be a therapy session for me too. Okay. And then you had a third point. <laughs> I love all of that. Um, and I am very familiar with the fun dad concept too. And it is like, I wanted to be, if I used to be a fun, like 20 something year old, like I think I still have it in me somehow, but I do get consumed with a lot of the worry for the kids and, and helping them thrive. Right. So that's that emotional part. How is their emotion, emotional state? Do I, I want to be there to listen to them talk in the car or put them to bed at night or make sure we have time if we're having dinner together, like to have those conversations. And if they're not feeling right, who is the person I need to talk to about that? Is it a teacher? Is it another parent? Like what's going on? And so it's like the, the alert antennas are on sussing out how my children's emotional and mental states are doing. And if they need to talk to someone who's hugging them, all that sort of stuff, that's usually me as well. And so I'm not dissing my husband at all, but like he can speak to them. Once I explained the point of this is that I explained this framework to my husband and he kind of went, oh, like, I see it now. I used to just look at the physical labor and be like, look, I'm helping with the the food. He's been amazing. You know, I just, I do not like cooking. So he has totally taken over a lot of that. And then he helps with the the laundry and this, he's like, "I, I do the physical, like I'm helping you. And then when I explain the other stuff, he has actually started saying, I noticed that you changed account. Thank you so much. Because usually with all of these emotional and calendaring stuff, in order to change the one lesson, you need to shift the other time. Like it's this huge knock-on effect and it, it, it turns into something bigger than just one quick phone call. Um, and him appreciating me for those keeps me floating for a lot longer than it would had those all of those things been invisible. Because that's usually the invisible labor. And if we can help magnify that, make it more visible and have women feel more appreciated for it. If they're the ones taking that on, I think that could go a long way. Yeah. One of the things my wife said to me, first of all, our love languages are very different. Mine's appreciation. And so I, the recognition is what I'm looking for um, or not what I'm looking for, but what, what does keep me going. And in that, I, I, that's the way my love language is, but hers is like action, whatever action is like, she does not care about thank you. She wants you to do the scheduling and things like that. So I'm working on that. But one of the things that she said to me that was so like impactful to me was she's very much, she's from Poland. They're from small spaces. Everything is very neat and organized. And that's not the way I, I walk through the world. And so she's like, this is stress on my mental health. You're all about mental health. You're all about women. Like this is my mental health is not good because of this. And then walking into this kind of stuff. And so, and then also the kind of frugality point of her, the way we see money is very different. And I'm think that it's going to come again and and have been in a situation where that's been the case. And so she doesn't see that same point. And so like paying for a cleaner was hard for her initially, even though it brings her so much joy. Um, And so, so things like that, I've, I've noticed I'm working on it. So this is all good for me too. And trying to do more physical things, but yeah, the emotional side and taking on that so that she can do it and get her away on girls trips and be supportive of that. So she knows everything can be taken care of is really powerful. Um, With that part, mental health, how do you 
balance mental health while you're doing all this stuff, while you're dealing with on your podcast, very heavy subjects, while you are um, talking to people again, often about things that they're not ready for and in everyday conversations and things like that. How do you balance the, the mental health sides with all what you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm really glad you asked it. <clears throat> I mean, I think after the pandemic, everybody's mental health and their relationship with it has shifted. I, people may have become more aware of what it takes to maintain their mental health. Um, but I think for us, it's almost because we have these heavy topics that we double down on the mental health care and physical care for as well. Um, you know, last year for me personally was really, really rough. And I think mental, the, the toll of the pandemic um, hit every single person in my family. And going back to that idea of like, I must rush in like a bulldozer and help figure out what is going on. That took a lot of life and energy from me to do that. And I think starting this year, it was this opportunity for me to take a breath as we, you know, after we published the book, because the book was coming out with all of this stuff, we really reset over the holidays and were able to say, okay, what worked, what didn't work about this last year? What do we need to do? And so in our calendar, we have started putting stuff like our workouts and you know, workouts shower, because it, let's be honest, everyone likes it better if you shower after a workout, like carving out time for all of these things first, before we start scheduling in our, our meetings, our appointments, our recording, our writing, you know, our planning for our talks, that sort of stuff has been a game changer. And we get done what we can get done in the times when the kids are at school. But then part of our weight was like, I don't want the kids to feel like we're no longer with them. So we really, really make a point to do as much as we can during the school day, during the school year, um, while also prioritizing, you know, get, getting all of those pillars of things that we need to do, like including lunches with friends, because that sort of stuff gives us new perspective. You can't do this work entirely in a silo. And so that has been a game changer for me to be able to prioritize it first, as opposed to when can I fit that workout in? Oh, look, I ran out of time. It's been like a week or a month or however long. Um, but it took me a while to feel like I could justify doing that. And so I'm glad you asked, because that was my big fight for myself this year was to get my physical and mental health back in order. Um, so, yes. And I, that's something I've struggled with too, as I reflect on my year that I've had away from having all these commitments that I had previously and will probably have again in the future permanently. I feel like I didn't prioritize things that have value to me enough because it wasn't directly aligned with the business or money making. And for example, so my dad's the oldest of 11 kids and they're, my dad is now 75. Um, and so they're getting up there in age. And so like, I wanted to have individual interactions with each one of them throughout this year. And I just didn't do it because it wasn't part of, you know, me working while my wife was working hard at home. And so that kind of part is tricky. And so I wish I would have done that. Cause I think the, the regret part of things is something, and you, and you talked about one of the, the skills I use or the, the tricks I use with the kids going to bed or those times, times when you're frustrated or exhausted or whatever, is I heard someone talk about, um, and there was a movie about time, which was great like that too. If you could go back in time at the end of your life, if you could go back for these moments, you would cherish that moment just unbelievably. And there's one guy's even like, what would you pay to go back to that mm -hmm. moment where you're doing it? And my kids are now eight and five and they're still sweet and they're still cuddly and they still call me daddy. And like all these things that that's not going to be there forever. And I'm not aware enough in the moment, but like trying to be more aware of those moments to me is, is big time mental health too. I'll never, and, and thinking like, will I ever regret doing this? No, like making time for yourself, making time for your health, make physical health and mental health, never, ever, ever. I, I think that's really important to realize because the studies have absolutely shown that we are notoriously terrible at predicting our future mental health, like, or, or our mental states. So many people say, and I think there was this one study that asked um, professors, once you get tenured, how will you feel? And they rated themselves as being like so much happier, but they all come back. You know, you have a spike and you kind of come back. Same thing for bad stuff, right? Like stuff happens, you feel like, but when my dad died, I thought I could potentially be depressed forever. Like this was awful, it's tragic, but we come back. We are very resilient as human beings, but notoriously terrible at you know estimating what we're gonna be like in the future, which makes me think, okay, if I'm looking at my life as a whole right now, what do I need to feel good in the here and now? And yes, they're absolutely, you know, having time for your relationships, having time to get productive work done, making money. We do need to do these things. And we also, especially as we get older, right in our forties, like it's so important to take care of our mental health because you can see in that up the next generation up, who are the people who've stayed active and who haven't stayed active. We're setting the foundation 
for the rest of our life right now. And we're not going to suddenly wake up at 60, having not taken care of our bodies or our minds and be like, I'm good. Let me start right now. Like we have to, I think that's the gift of this age, this middle period where we are raising children and looking at our elders. And we have this opportunity to just be like, cool. Like I want to, this is the pillar. This is my foundation and we can build it and build it really well and intentionally. Um, and I think part of that has to be making space for yourself. And the last thing I want to talk to you about, and then we'll wrap it up is so many people in their lives have a book in them, have multiple books in them, but they never get it done. My dad just at 73, I think was when he finished it after a career in RTD bus driving, wrote his first novel, which so is cool. great. And, and maybe being even made into a movie currently. He's got talking to people, which is wonderful, legitimate people. Um, but people don't do it or get it done. How did you, what was the process like for you writing a book, getting it published? How, how does that look? I, so I do believe in the power of writing down your big audacious goals, because as it turns out, when I was writing my first book, I went back through my life coaching notes and in it was like my 10 year goal, like publish a book. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is your nine and a half. Like it literally happened. Um, and I think once I did it the first time, I realized how I could do it differently and improve upon it. But I think it just has to get done. It has to be like a goal for me. I'm not one of those people yet who can spend five years spending like, you know, 10 minutes a day writing. Like that wasn't my style. It was more like, let me like push this baby right on out of me. And it was spending dedicated time and sort of making everything else go on, on maintenance um, to get it done. And, and for me, that worked better. But I think the thing with creativity is we all are creative in our own ways. So if that book is part of your creative process, go for it because it'll never be in the world unless you put it out there. Um, and once you get a draft, like you're going to edit it, you're going to fix it. You're going to do more with it. So just start writing. I, I think have that vision for what, what you want to create and, and go for it. Yeah, I've heard that too. There's no such thing as a good first draft and just getting it on paper. And I always say done is better than perfect. Like get it done and you can always modify it and make it better in the future. My dad self-published his book too, which is is very easy now. And they have these systems. And I think whenever someone buys it on Amazon, they literally print out a copy and they're sending it, um, which is an amazing world. And he mm -hmm. has an audio book that's made from it, which is wonderful, which I'm listening, re-listening to now, which is wonderful. Um, how did the publishing part work? For us, we went with a partnership publishing model. Um, I, you know, for us, this is what we think is more of a mass market book. It's a really good level setting guide to anti-racism, like including all the usual pushbacks we get from white people when they're first entering the conversations to the common things we assume about people of, uh, of different backgrounds in this country. And so we wanted it to get to a wide audience, which meant bookstores. And there, therefore we couldn't go self-publishing because that is great and it won't show up in bookstores. And so um, we also knew that traditional publishing, we didn't have you know, hundreds of thousands of followers and people we could say buy our book at that stage. And so traditional is not as interested in us. Plus they tend to take longer to turn a book around. And this felt like a right now kind of book. We are in the heat of anti-racism and we got the book out in 2021. Um, and so this partnership model for us was we invest, like they have a structure and they all come from traditional publishing. So it's a high quality um, editor, cover team, like fact checking, all of the stuff that they provided for us and we paid for it. And then we get huge royalty percentages compared to the traditional publishing model because we put some of the money upfront into the, the production of it. Our skin is in the game, their skin is in the game. And so together we really work to get the book out and it's in bookstores uh, all across the country from that. Yeah, and I saw it in our library. I took a picture. That was so I cool. I was so <laughs> grateful. Thank you for that. Okay, final thing then is that how do people, how can people support you now where you're at? What can people do to, to help support your work? I think the biggest thing is see if your organization, whether it's your book club, whether it's the company you work at, um, anybody locally here wants to continue to have these conversations, um, see if you can hire us. We really, you know, we're, we're thriving with these fireside chats because I think um, people hear our voices in a different way. We have a very different, unique lens that we have these conversations through as biracial people, one of whom is married to a white man, one is who is married to a black man with very different, you know, professional backgrounds. And so we really have been um, grateful for those in the community who've already brought us into their organizations to have us lead conversations or be part of them. Um, and on top of that, 
like, please read the book and leave a review on Amazon for us. Um, and if you want to check out the podcast, great. If you're a podcast listener. Yeah. And the podcast ratings go a long way too, as far as that and the algorithm. Right. And I think with the ratings online too, that makes it, makes it an important thing. And it's Dear White Women. That's the name of the podcast and the book, correct? Correct. It's Dear White Women. And the book is Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism. Um, and I am really psyched to be here and I'm really excited to see where we go next. So thank you for having me on.